This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 27 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and like always, I'm joined by another awesome guest. He is an engineering manager at Instagram, and he's the creator of IG List Kit and GitHawk. It's Ryan Nyström. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, it's really hard for me to pronounce your last name because since I'm Swedish, I really, really want to pronounce it Nyström, like the Swedish way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's technically correct. You know, my, my family is originally from Sweden, but I've, I've been here, well, I guess my family's been here for two or three generations, so it's fully Americanized to Nyström. There you go. Awesome. So I guess your family, like back in the days, were like uh, migrating from Sweden to, to America, as it was called back then? Yeah, exactly. I think my like great-grandfather, great-grandmother, uh, originally from Sweden, came over to the United States, and then my grandfather and, and my father uh, grew up here. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm taking my first trip to Sweden ever uh, later this fall, which is going to be pretty exciting. Ah, oh, that's really awesome. Cool. I, I hope you'll have a good time. And it's good that you're visiting in the fall and not in the winter when it's like super dark and, <laughs> and very cold. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Cool. So uh, you are working at Instagram. You started out, as far as I know, as an iOS developer. And then more recently now you've transitioned into uh, management and becoming an, an engineering manager. So I've been here for coming on almost four years now. Um, when I joined, I think there were like less than a dozen iOS engineers, which at the time for me was like the biggest iOS team uh, imaginable. But now we're looking at probably, I, I would guess, like around 100 iOS engineers, which is crazy to see it almost uh, 10x in size. Wow. But about four months ago, um, I switched into engineering management, which has been pretty exciting. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I actually made a very similar kind of journey when I was at Spotify, uh, both the same kind of uh, sheer growth of the team, uh, but I also uh, was a manager for a while, uh, which, you know, it kind of happens kind of organically, right? When the team grows and some people need to step into management in order to actually be able to grow the team further. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I came to Facebook and Instagram because I, I wanted to learn both engineering skills, but I, I really told myself day one that eventually wanted to try management because um, I'm sure it's similar at, at Spotify too. These places just have kind of incredible resources for like personal and professional growth. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to try management and try and pick up some of those manager skills, which I'll be honest, I have like none prior to coming into this role. Uh -huh. um, what better place to to try it at a place that's like you know got classes and all sorts of books and resources and mentorship available? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was the same at Spotify. You were really encouraged to try on different roles and to kind of try to grow yourself by yeah. you know getting out of your comfort zone, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's always a big benefit of working in a big company, and that's why. You know, people often ask me, like, uh, what do you prefer, like working in a small company or a big company? And it's always so hard to choose one because they have so many different kind of pros and cons, like like with everything in life, right? Oh, big time. Yeah, but one really big benefit of working in a big company is just this this thing that you can actually 
uh, easily kind of transition into new roles. Yeah, exactly. And it, I was kind of blown away by the how much people encourage you to change roles at Facebook because I thought coming from like a traditional like agency world, I was like, there's no way this makes any business sense to have people constantly changing roles and teams and everything. But it, you know, it's really like a it's really a long game. the The more that people, the longer that people stay at the company, the more they learn, the more they grow, the more they're able to do. And it, it doesn't mean that you have to pigeonhole somebody to like one role for them to be productive and happy. Um, and and personally, it, it's great for me because I get to try out a whole bunch of stuff and learn and grow um, myself. And so it's really win win. I stay at the company, and then I get to be like fulfilled and try a bunch of stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's really awesome. So you mentioned now already a couple of times, like you say Instagram, you say Facebook, and obviously Facebook owns Instagram, but you also feel like you are working at Facebook, you work in the same offices as Facebook, or is Instagram still kind of separate in, in how you work? No, it's still the same company. Um, we have like sort of separate offices just because all of our teams are like co-located. But so I'm in New York City and we just opened up um, a new floor in the Facebook building that's like an Instagram floor. And we were able to do our own sort of like design and aesthetic and make it sort of Instagrammy. But we're still in like the Facebook building. I have meetings with uh, Facebook engineers and people uh, constantly. You know, we're all we're all kind of like one in the same. Okay, awesome. And you also kind of share, you share knowledge, I guess. You also share like tech and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, that originally that was one of the great things. Uh, one of the smart moves for Instagram was to be able to take advantage of all of like Facebook's infrastructure and everything, which is huge and incredible. Um, and I really think that that helped, that attributed to Instagram being able to scale uh, what we had just announced a couple weeks ago or uh, two weeks ago that we crossed a billion users on Instagram. And I, I think that yeah, that's amazing. That was a huge feat um, to be able to come and, and work together with Facebook and learn how to grow that big. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congrats on one billion users. That is a huge milestone. So uh, really, really exciting. Yeah, it was it was awesome. So besides working at Instagram, you also work a ton on open source. Well, you do a lot of open source work as yes, part of your work is Instagram too, I guess. We're going to talk about that a little bit later with IG ListKit. Uh, but one project that you've been working on a lot recently is uh, one of my favorite apps, actually, on my phone, uh, which is GitHawk. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the story of how GitHawk kind of came to be. Well, that's first off, that's very kind. Uh, GitHawk really started... Um, it's it's very related to IG List Kit. So we built IG List Kit at Instagram. The framework is built entirely in Objective C. But when we released it, Swift was already in. I think uh, version two, um, maybe even version three in beta. And one of the promises when we released this framework was that even though we don't use any Swift at Instagram, we want to be able to release this framework as a like modern framework and we want people to be able to use it in brand new apps so we, we needed to make sure it was totally compatible with swift and one of the dangers of releasing this framework that's in objective c and building it in an app that's only objective c is that we wouldn't really get that firsthand experience using it in swift right no dog fooding exactly uh, and and even though i think that when we first launched the framework, it worked fine in Swift. There were a couple rough edges and that really needed to be ironed out. And I told myself that like I really wanted to just kind of build something using IG List Kit 
in Swift and really figure out what those rough edges were and what the best path forward would be. And at the same time, still kind of on the topic of IG ListKit, managing that framework, um, responding to questions, notifications, pull requests was kind of a pain. Um, GitHub hasn't had like a really great mobile site. Their desktop experience, I think, is wonderful, but there's a lot to be desired on mobile. So I thought, what a great kind of like blend, killing a whole bunch of birds with one big stone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll build this app in Swift to manage my GitHub notifications using IG ListKit. Um, and it kind of uh, it kind of ballooned from there. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. I love it because when I see a GitHawk, you know, it looks very polished, like uh, on a kind of product level. Like you've got a new website also. I, I think it's that, that's quite new, right? Yeah, that was my like, uh, whenever I go on vacation, I like to have some sort of little kind of tinker project to mess around with. And when we went to Florida recently, that was kind of my uh, learn about CSS and Flexbox project. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, so when I look at GitHawk, you know, it looks um, very much like a something that was driven from a, like a product point of view where you like had an idea for an app and you built this app, etc. But it's very interesting to hear that it more comes from kind of the technical perspective of you wanted to have like a, you know, a showcase for IG ListKit and Swift or you wanted to, you know, uh, dog food the APIs and it now turned into this like really cool product. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mentioned that is one of my favorite apps and uh, I have a very similar problem like like you described as well. Like I have uh, quite a lot of projects uh, with a fair amount of velocity uh, and, you know, keeping track of all those notifications can be really, really daunting and really tricky. So that's why I love this app that, you know, it makes it very, very easy to uh, to respond to notifications and check them out, which is really cool. Yeah, thank you. So you're also still developing this app completely in the open. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you make that decision to not only kind of use it as a showcase uh, and kind of maybe open source parts of it, but to actually open source the entire thing and to enable people to contribute to the app itself? Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoy building apps, but one of the things that I've really picked up on and, and leaned into here at Instagram is that it's it's so much more fun to build and collaborate with people. Um, and when I started building this app, I was just building it locally, no version control or anything. And while that was kind of fun, it, it didn't feel collaborative. And I felt like I was kind of talking to myself and maybe going a little bit stir crazy. <laughs> but yeah. I also wanted to offer up I am a big believer in just like learning. I used to write a bunch of tutorials and stuff. I am a big believer in like opening up and inviting people from various skill sets to come in and contribute and participate and learn. Um, and that's very like reciprocal. You know, I'm not necessarily interested in just like teaching a whole bunch of people. Um, we'll bring people with a whole bunch of different background and experience into the project and, and will actually teach me things. Um, for instance, I've learned a ton about like iOS accessibility um, through just opening this project and inviting people that have um, pretty strong skills in accessibility support coming in and teaching me how to better evaluate the app and, and audit it for its accessibility and, and teaching me about best practices, both from a technical sense and from a like a design and user experience sense. Yes, yeah, the classic thing where it's like if you can't do something, then partnering with someone who can is, you know, a really good way to go. And with open source projects, you get all of that stuff, plus kind of the community and, you know, people getting invested in the project and, and helping out kind of all in the same way. 
Yeah, and there's there's also this sort of like meta aspect of it where it's an app for GitHub built on GitHub. And I didn't necessarily want to um, create this app and just take a bunch of credit and say, like, this is my app, look at me. I actually really wanted to kind of release this into the wild and, and make it a, like, community-driven app. I look at other huge iOS communities, like uh, Fastlane is a really great example. Um, even though I think of Felix Krauss when I, I think about Fastlane and, and its origins, it's it's so much more than a single person. It's a community of active, engaged people. And I really kind of wanted to push this app out into the world, automate it as much as possible. So it's really not me being the bottleneck uh, and decision maker for the app, but really kind of let anybody build any feature that they would want to see in it. And that's where a project goes from, you know, just being like a project that is technically open source. You can see the source code, but it's still like controlled very heavily by one person. And one person is the bottleneck, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and becoming more of a community like Fastlane, CocoaPods and, exactly. and like what you're doing now as well, which is always really cool to see. Exactly. Awesome. So you mentioned that uh, one of the key reasons that you wanted to create GitHawk was as a kind of showcase or as a dogfooding for the Swift API of IG ListKit. So I think that's a pretty great segue into IG ListKit. <laughs> <laughs> so what we want to talk about here is uh, talk about the framework itself, kind of where it came from, but also kind of use it as a larger discussion for kind of this idea of data-driven or declarative UI, which is becoming uh, more and more popular in many different shapes or forms. Uh, but to kick things off, um, can you give us like a bird's eye overview of IG List Kit? Like what's the kind of elevator pitch for the framework? Definitely. So IG List Kit itself is really not that complex of a framework. It, at its core, it's just a UI collection view. So most people that have built even vanilla iOS apps have probably gotten some exposure to UI collection view. Uh, creating cells of dynamic sizes, laying them out, scrolling them, etc. The the tricky part about using UI Collection View and making it very performant and stable is making doing complex updates, uh, inserting cells, inserting sections, moving them, deleting them, doing whatever, um, and managing that data flow from whatever models or structures power the content and number of sections and cells. So what IG List Kit does is it really makes, it creates like a very strict model where you have an array of stuff and that array of stuff then gets fed through IG List Kit's infrastructure and it sets up, creates, um, and configures a UI collection view with its sections and cells. Now where IG List Kit really shines is we have a diffing algorithm at its core. So whenever that array of stuff changes, IG List Kit will do a diff from the old to the new array, figure out the appropriate deletes, inserts, moves, and updates, and then map that into operations that it executes on UI Collection View. And kind of the the nice part about that is you can get really good uh, simple UI collection view animations, so transitioning when stuff gets deleted or whatever, uh, basically by just changing your data and not having to worry about where that data is, at what point in time are you updating the collection view or anything. You're just thinking about your data and how to set up your cells. Yeah, and that is a really, really nice programming model in general. And I think that's 
one of the main reasons why this kind of declarative approach is becoming so popular, where you don't have to worry so much about the steps to go from A to B, you just change A to B, and then you have a framework, in this case, IG List Kit, that just takes care of that for you. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the diffing algorithm, and this is something that I almost always hear whenever someone talks about IG List Kit. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's always like, IG List Kit is awesome, and their diffing algorithm, oh, that's, a, that's a piece of art. <laughs> so where did this kind of diffing algorithm come from, and... Uh, how did you kind of choose that algorithm to incorporate that into the framework? So I, I have to I have to admit, building this stiffing algorithm was probably one of the most satisfying things that I've done in my engineering career. I can um, imagine. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever really dipped into like productionized C code for like measurable performance reasons. Um, it was just a ton of fun. The the origin of it, you know, when we started this project. It actually, the entire pro framework itself began as just a diffing algorithm. We decided like, oh, it's too hard to figure out what changed and apply these updates to uh, the collection view. Because within Instagram, we were just using reload data. And there came a point where it's like, oh, I'd love to do like you tap in uh, a close button on some sort of cell and we want it to like uh, fade out and the, the stuff collapse around it. Well, we'd have to do like a collection view delete to be able to do that. And our existing infrastructure was pretty hairy. Uh, it would be kind of easy to mess that up. So we started with just like, hey, let's use, because we're always dealing with arrays of data, let's create a diffing algorithm that'll figure out how to do that delete for us without having to actually be doing any searching or scanning or something. And what started as just like a diffing algorithm became this dive into research papers and studies. Um, there are so many different types of diffing algorithms out there in the wild. And we needed to find something that mapped really well to UI Collection View because UI Collection View has a pretty strict set of rules about what you can delete, what the index paths correlate to. Um, there are all these sort of like gotchas when you do batch updates with collection view. And so we need the output of this diffing algorithm to line up really nicely with UI collection view. And we actually found a paper. I'm trying to remember when it was published. I think the early 70s. Oh, wow. So it's quite old. It's pretty old, which which also made it very fun. Um, you know, it, it was only like a five-page paper, but it was kind of this core... Um, research on how to create a change set from lines of text in two documents and be able to output the minimal set of instructions to take your first, um, your original document and create your new document. And the whole purpose of this paper was because, you know, we were dealing with extremely slow internet connections at the time. Um, right. And if you wanted to send documents between machines, you needed to do it very efficient, especially if you were talking huge documents, which I guess at the time would be like a megabyte or something. And <laughs> yeah, something unimaginably huge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, they, they didn't want to retransmit um, the, the new document. Instead, what you'd want to do is just transmit a, a set of changes so that um, it's going to be much, much smaller, especially, I mean, you know, imagine only deleting a line or something. You don't want to retransmit that whole document, wait and use up all that energy and stuff. Um, yeah. And so this, this algorithm, the output of the algorithm actually works really well with what UI Collection View expects. 
And so we took that, that algorithm, we implemented it originally in Objective-C, found out that there were some bottlenecks in uh, dealing with like dictionaries and map tables, and tweaked it to use C++, made it lightning fast, and uh, dropped it into, well, really actually kind of built an infrastructure around it uh, from there. And that kind of became Idealiskit in the, in the end. Exactly. It's really interesting to hear that uh, the whole framework kind of grew around the diffing algorithm because that kind of, you know, confirms a lot about what you hear as well, which is like the diffing algorithm is like the centerpiece of the framework, right? Both in terms of how people think about it, but also how it came to be. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm kind of a, an aviation nerd. And, you know, there's this, this there's an airplane in the military, uh, the, the U.S. Air Force called the A-10 Warthog. And it's this like low and slow plane but it's got this like giant machine gun uh, on, in like under the nose of the plane. And if you were to see like a cross section of the plane, you realize like the plane is the gun. <laughs> and there's a joke about how they just basically slapped wings and an engine on this gun. And, and that's, that's actually kind of how I look at IG List Kit is we, we built this stable infrastructure and this nice architecture around um, kind of the, the meat of everything, which is the diffing algorithm. Nice. Slapped a few collection view cells on top of a dipping algorithm. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's awesome. It's really cool because um, you mentioned that you had to go back, you know, to research papers from like the 70s. And I think that's that's really uh, cool to hear because I think sometimes our... Uh, a way of doing research can be very limited by our platform. Like we only do research within like the iOS space or we might do it in like modern computer science. But going back to see kind of those um, old techniques that were used for something completely different but under a similar type of constraints uh, can be really, really interesting. And what, what really fascinates me about this stuff is that, you know, as computers have gotten faster and faster, we've kind of just fill them up with, uh, I think that there's some quote that is, we just keep filling them up with more stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by doing something like this is that you are enabling a new programming model by just changing the data and being very declarative, by then using a technique that had a different types of constraints to still enable things to execute fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a really great way of putting it. Yeah, and uh, I, I found that really fascinating that you know, now when we have all this power, rather than just, you know, throwing more animations and more graphics and all this stuff, we can use it to enable more convenient programming models that are less error prone. Yep. Yep. So you mentioned that there's a lot of caveats with working with UI collection view. And I think that pretty much anyone who has written something custom with collection views have fallen into some of these traps. Like you, are you supposed to do the updates during the batch update, before the batch update, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that to me, if I was to name anything, uh, if you're going to work with vanilla UI collection view, that is like the one key thing that you have to do is make sure if, if you are updating your model, always do it inside perform batch updates, no matter what. Um, right. There, there are a whole bunch of technical details as to why that that can get messed up, uh, but it will break. Yeah, totally. So, um, Idealist Kit in many ways is like a wrapper around a collection view, and there exists a lot of these kind of frameworks that take some part of UI Kit and wraps wraps it up in some kind of nicer API that enables us to work in a in a new kind of way. So. Um, what other kind of challenges do you usually have when working with UIKit on such a scale that Instagram is working at? Like, uh, are collection views the main kind of pain point and you solve that with IGListKit? Or are there some other things that you're kind of usually dealing with? 
collection views are a pretty complicated part only because there are these subtleties that can be really detrimental. Um, one of the hardest things to do is to maintain um, 60 frames per second scroll performance. Um, there are tiny, tiny optimizations that you can do to achieve better performance. There are non-obvious things that will hurt scroll performance. And when you're dealing with a team of you know 100 people working on an app, it's not like one thing will hurt scroll performance. And there's like one uh, technology that we have to say, don't use that because it's slow. No, it's usually, uh, it's, there's this phrase death by a thousand cuts. Um, right. A whole bunch of tiny non-performant things will happen and they'll accumulate over time. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation where scrolling feels chunky and there's no silver bullet to fix it. Instead, you have to kind of roll your sleeves up and work for months to track down all of these, uh, issues. And that can be a huge pain. Yeah, totally. Imagine, you know, if you have a hundred iOS developers and all of them make a trade-off that's going to cause one millisecond of lag, right? Mm -hmm. So if I make that trade-off and I'm just one developer, that's usually fine because it's just one millisecond. But if you have a hundred developers making that same trade-off, you all of a sudden have a hundred milliseconds of lag, right? Exactly. So it all kind of accumulates and it kind of what would you say? You know, it it adds up, right? Yeah, yeah, and that and and those things are really hard to defend against too, because you also don't want to be like the police of a code base. You don't want to be kind of having to be a hawk and watch every single line of code that anybody's adding. So sometimes you have to add tools to be able to catch these things, or to recommend against bad practices, or build infrastructure. You know, like things like IGLiskit, where it takes away a lot of the things that are easy to mess up and abstracts them into something clean that people then don't have to think about anymore. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that uh, IGLiskit gets compared to a lot is React Native. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, you know, pretty natural because I guess both of them are abstractions on top of UIKit. Both of them enable you to build UIs in a more kind of declarative fashion. And they're both coming from, you know, more or less the same company from Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so what would be your answer to that question? Like, how does IGListKit compare to React Native? Yeah, we get this a lot. And I can imagine. <laughs> Considering how many times I get that, yeah. I can imagine how many times you get that. <laughs> when when we originally started building the the framework, um, you know, React Native wasn't a thing, but React was very much a thing. It was incredibly popular, and there were some kind of iOS uh, iOS uh, adoptions. Even even at Facebook, we had Component Kit, which is like it's a C adoption of React. And, mm -hmm. you know, this was an option for us to use at the time. But one of the hard things is that we're building on top of UIKit, which, you know, if, if you think about it, UIKit is already an abstraction layer over core animation. And if you go deeper, core animation is just an abstraction layer over OpenGL. And so as you add more layers, things get trickier. And... One of the values we have at Instagram on the engineering side, well, on the product side too, is to kind of always do the simple thing first. And to me, that really meant that we wanted to just use UIKit, that there were APIs and features in UIKit that we wanted to kind of 
always take advantage of. And we also knew that like as iOS versions come out that we wanted to stick to those. Um, so we wanted something light. And we also had like a very defined problem with how we were using collection views um, to render content. So we wanted to solve that one problem and not necessarily adopt something huge or create something too huge. Um, like I said, IGLiskit at its core is, is a pretty simple framework. Um, that being said, one of the funny things is that I never set out building IGLiskit to think about unidirectional data flow or building a declarative model. We were really thinking, oh, we just want, we use arrays of data and we want to map them to collection view and make it so that you can't crash the app. Right. What we ended up with was really a unidirectional data flow where you have <laughs> declare data, you map it to controllers, which map to views. And, and if you look at them from like a very high level, it's very similar to how React does things. Yeah. React, you have props. Uh, with IGListKit, you have you know, NS object models. And those props and those models get passed through these systems down to their core components. Um, and it's really like exactly the same sort of principle. Um, you want data to move left to right. And so even though we aren't using, uh, well, we do use React Native, but even though we aren't using it in, in our uh, main feed, it is kind of like the exact same approach. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's super interesting. And it's also so interesting that so many different frameworks have arrived at a very similar model, because I think that the kind of declarative, very functional uh, metaphor when it comes to binding data to a UI is very, very nice. And it lets you code in a much, much like effortless way when it comes to how you update your data. Yeah, I, I love the idea of just being able to like think of your app and your app state as models. Um, to be able to just model what you see on screen, uh, what is happening in the app, what the user is doing with, with data. And to be able to take like a snapshot of what is displayed and model it. And it makes everything that you're doing replayable. It makes it very testable. Now, there is like the far end of this spectrum where you get into things like, uh, what is it called? I think uh, Redux, where oh, right. yeah. your entire app is like a model. And mm -hmm. that can become really tricky. I, I think that you have to like really get that design right. Um, otherwise, the at least when I've messed around with it using JavaScript, it becomes... I, maybe it's just the way that I write it, it becomes sort of like a <laughs> spaghetti nightmare. Um, oh, right. <laughs> but I think the, the objective of those sort of tools is, is kind of beautiful to be able to mm -hmm. model everything that's happening inside of an app with data and then to, to strictly enforce how that data gets updated, what are the actions, what are the side effects, and, and then really thinking about that unidirectional data flow of like we've got this huge app model and then we kind of send bits and pieces of it down to all the different components that then update the ui and and become what the person sees and can interact with i i think it's like the north star it's just so hard to get right and and you know i'm i'm thinking too at a, a engineering scale of 100 people um mm -hmm. if, yeah. if, you screw, if you screw that up it is devastating um to our productivity 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the beautiful thing about something like that is that you can kind of code in the same way as you would draw like a flow chart on a whiteboard or something, right? Where you have like, here's the data, like the root data, like this, the state of the app. And then all of the UIs kind of become like a function of that state. So the state changes, the UI changes. Yep. And that is, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty nice to be able to model something that way. Yeah. Um, we explored a lot of similar ideas when I was working at Spotify, and uh, it also culminated in a framework that was called the Hub Framework, uh, or it's still called, even though now Spotify has like, they, they haven't uh, continued that open source kind of journey and, you know, done something different. Uh, but very, very similar ideas where uh, we kind of attacked it more from kind of like the backend driven aspect of what if we could kind of make all of our states serializable and we could send that view state directly as the response from the back end and then we could have a framework that would just map that state into components and render that also using a ui collection view is that is those kind of ideas anything that you also explored like you know having the data kind of flow from the back end and enable things like you know uh, dynamic insertion of components and things like that yeah, I I have seen some people. I I actually remember when when Hub came out because uh, we got pretty excited because it took some of the ideas of IGLisk and added this sort of like backend flavor to it, which seemed really exciting. Uh, the problem that I have with a lot of those solutions is that you you sacrifice control from the client and a lot of optimizations that you'd want to make on the client um you know optimistically mutating data before the network request comes in um mm -hmm. you know, imagine you have like a like button you want to hit like on it and see it change to like even if you're on like uh you're in the subway and your network uh, your network connection is too slow um because those make the app perceptually feel a lot faster and those sort of like micro optimizations can become really challenging when everything is technically server driven because you have to have a system that allows the local mutations of data, um, sends it to the server, and then the server has to deliver like the new UI changes. Um, yeah. Not to say it can't be done. I'm, I'm pretty sure it can. It's just it's, it's very hard to get right, I think. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, the way we solved it with Hub Framework was that we had this concept of content operations, where a content operation could either be connected to the backend and download the JSON and then render that you know, into the, the view, or it could also be local. So you could have two content operations kind of chained together where one would update the local state, in this case for the like button, and then it would like make that server request and uh, then get kind of the final view state. So you could make those... Uh, what would you say, like optimistic updates, right? Where you would assume that the, that the request would succeed and then later you would fill it in with the, with the right data. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's actually sort of the architecture that we use on GitHub too, is to be able to update the, uh, the models locally, fire off the requests. And in GitHub's uh, sense, we only, do, we only respond to the network request if it fails because then we kind of like undo the model changes. Right. Has Igilis Kit uh, also helped you kind of facilitate A-B testing and experimentation and things like that since you are able to like create these controllers in more like a modular fashion? Oh, big time. Um, yeah. You know, a, a piece of Igilis Kit that I haven't really talked about is, is we map, we don't directly map your models to cells in UI collection view. Uh, we map models to what we call section controllers, which represent a section 
within a, a collection view. But this is also sort of like a, a contained view controller. This is where you put all of your business logic about what happens inside that section, in addition to how many cells, how to configure the cells, their sizes, et cetera. Um, so in this sense, if you have a, a model that maps to a section controller, you can have, like, say, a, a post model, and this maps to a post section controller. And this will display, like, a photo and some comments or something. But then you could also have, like, a, a banner model, and it can map to a banner section controller that displays some sort of, you know, um, trying to get somebody's attention that there was an update or, or whatever. And if you want to test variations of that banner, all you need to do is create like a banner two model and then a banner two section controller. And they can look sort of similar, but have their own sort of distinct behavioral effects, animations or whatever. And, and the nice part about doing this in IG list kit is that your model is totally separate and your section controllers are completely isolated. They really shouldn't depend on each other whatsoever. And that lets you add whatever code you need to in the old system, in the new system, and then A-B test them simply by swapping the models, uh, not having to worry at all about the position in the list, uh, the logic inside the section controller relative to the old one. You can use completely different cells or reuse your cells, but to, in order to do that swap, the only if statement is going to be that model. Yeah, that's a, another really big benefit of this declarative or, you know, more decoupled approach of building UIs because you can just swap things out very easily. And I think that's another reason why so many companies, once they reach a certain point and a certain scale, they start looking into something like this because no one wants a view controller with 2,000 lines where 1,000 of those lines are if statements, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. All right, next up, we want to talk about open source. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor. And it's once again, my favorite continuous integration service, Bitrise. Bitrise is not only a fast and very reliable service to build your app, run its tests and distribute it to your testers. They also have a super nice and user-friendly UI. They actually just redesigned their site with a brand new design, which is really, really beautiful. Now you might be thinking, why does my CI service need to be pretty? Well, personally, I'd much rather use a nice, elegant and easy to use UI to set up my build or debug issues that come up rather than having to fiddle around with configuration files and having to do these like commits just to test if something works. No, in Bitrise, you just change things in the web UI and it all just works. It integrates with GitHub and it pulls in your project, it builds it, it runs your tests, and it even sends beta builds to your testers. It's all automatic. And that's why I use Bitrise for my client projects. Having this type of automation is such a huge time saver for me. And with some really good tests in place as well, it can really help you avoid bugs. And also, if you have a tester who needs access to the latest build, Rather than having to do it manually, you know, to check out master and to build the app and send it to them, you can just tell them to go to Bitrise, log in, and they can just get the latest build from there. It's super nice. And finally, if you're like me and you work with clients, you can even continuously deliver your app to them on every single commit that you make. How cool isn't that? You just make a commit, you push it to, to GitHub, Bitrise picks it up, and your client gets a new build, completely automatic. So make sure to check out Bitrise. And the best part is that you can get started completely for free. All you have to do is go to bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell. 
That lets you sign up for free. And it also tells Bitrise that you came from this show, which really helps support me and my work. So once again, that's bitrise.io slash Sundell for continuous integration that just works. Thank you so much to Bitrise for their continued support of Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue making this show possible. Cool. So uh, now I want to segue a little bit and talk a little bit more about open source, because like we mentioned in the intro, uh, you've been working a lot on open source lately. And we talked a little bit about the benefits of uh, building something in the open. You know, you can build a community around it. You can have more contributors. You can have people with specialized skills getting into the project. Uh, but what has been some of the kind of challenges for you uh, building things like GitHawk, open sourcing IG list kits? Uh, what has been some of the things that you've had to change in the way you work in order to make this happen? One huge challenge is, is simply maintenance. Um, projects, even if it's not responding to issues, um, once they appear dead, they're basically dead. Mm-hmm. And you, you want to make sure that you're always kind of keeping things up to date and making sure that people um, are able to feel like this project is still being used. Um, they can know that people are around if they need help. But on the flip side of that, you really have to you have to make sure that you're not building somebody's app for them. Um, yeah. We'll get a lot of I'll get a lot of requests for. Uh, you know, here's my section controller, here's my model, why doesn't this work? And while I want to fix everything for everybody and I want everybody to have a good time uh, using the framework, at the same time, I only have a limited amount of time that I can spend supporting this. Um, and I would much rather enable others to be to learn um, and, and, and to be kind of like champions and, and under, champions of the framework and understand how these things work. So I've had to adopt, originally I had a style where I would try to solve everybody's problems. And I've, I've had to update that to be a little bit more, um, try to push more back on the question asker and almost try to lead them to solve their own problem. Yeah, I think that's something that almost every open source maintainer kind of goes through where in the beginning, you're very, very excited. Uh, You're excited that your project is getting some form of attention and that people are using it because, I mean, there's, there's no better feeling when you're creating an open source project and then you hear about people who build cool stuff using it because that's kind of the reason you wanted to open source it in the first place. But then, you know, comes the support and, you know, people asking questions. And of course, that's also a positive thing because it means people care and people want to use it. And some, it might also be a great way to identify parts of the code base that are not intuitive. But like you say, the challenge becomes like when either there might be some kind of issues that are just opened directly without even looking into the code and just like, you know, asking the question right right off the bat. Uh, but the other part might just be, you know, that the questions are quite complex and actually having time to deal with those things. Yeah. And another really challenging part with uh, with maintaining these projects is, is prioritization. I, I always feel like there's uh, dozens of things that I could be doing. And, and I really have to ask myself every time a feature request comes in or a bug request comes in, I have to ask myself, like, is this is this worth it? And a really good example with IG List Kit is so UI Collection View can, I can't remember when they added the API in iOS 7, maybe, 
can UI collection view cells can determine their own size, usually with like auto layout. Mm, right. And I've, at least my personal experience, this has always been kind of like a buggy nightmare. <laughs> and we get tons of support requests for it. And every single time somebody says, hey, this isn't working, I really want to fix it. And I want to help somebody out. And at the beginning, I, I would try and dive into, uh, people would send sample projects. I would dive into the code. I would try to make it work. We would update our, our documentation and our sample code. And it eventually got to the point where as soon as we would put out one fire, another one would start someplace else. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where I just said, like, look, we can't support this anymore. The self-sizing cell stuff, it's just gone. Um which sucks. And I, I, I don't want to have to tell people in the community like this, don't use this. It's not good. You know, I'm not saying that the technology itself is bad or good, mm-hmm. but in the, the scope of IG list kit, it just became one of these things where like, look, we don't use it at Instagram. So I can't give you any firsthand support or experience on this thing. I don't have the time or energy uh, to, to fix this. And, and, you know, we also, when it comes to priorities, like the, the project itself the success of the project doesn't hinge on this one API. And, and it's just something that we can't prioritize because uh, there are so many other things with the project that are important. Um, and I want to fix them all, but you know, we, we just have such a limited amount of time myself, the, the other engineers at Instagram who contribute and the other open source contributors. Yeah. And I think there you kind of, uh, you're hitting the nail on the head there. Uh, One big realization that I've come to with open source is that it's actually worse for a project to adopt a new API or a new feature that you're not using yourself or the community is not heavily using as kind of maintainers. Because that means like going back to kind of the Swift and the dog fooding discussion from before, that just means that you are way more likely to introduce bugs when you iterate and you make changes. And even though someone else goes in and implements that into the framework, chances are it will break, it will not be fully supported. And when that person, you know, might not be in the community anymore, the the feature kind of just is just a headache. And it just makes things slower. And it's usually just kind of a, a bad experience for everybody. So it's usually a better idea that the project is kind of very well aligned with the maintainer's use of it, because that way you will always kind of dogfood it, you will always uh, discover issues early, and you will always be very, very incentivized to keep things kind of, you know, to have a very, very high level of quality. Right. And we, we're even dealing with this um, right now with this concept. We, we created this thing called a, a stacked section controller within IG List Kit that would essentially make let you make a section controller out of other section controllers and and sort of the idea was to let you uh, have more dynamic control over how to compose um, your section controllers and, and and break these down into even further pieces so I, I created this this was another like vacation tinker project and and was really excited about the idea that we pulled it off and then we don't use it at Instagram and then there's all these problems with it and people are asking for support and, um, you know, these certain designs are hard to understand or something. And we're, we're in the process of updating the project for our, our major 4.0 release. And I finally made the decision that we just got to delete it. We can't support it anymore because we don't use it. And if we're not going to use it, we're just not going to give it the attention it needs. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things where you might disappoint a few people in the short term, but it's going to be better for everyone kind of long term. Another kind of API design challenge that I've been kind of facing with open source and I'm continuing to think a lot about is kind of what should go into the core of the project and what shouldn't. Like where, where to basically draw the line to say, this is kind of out of scope for this project. And along those lines, one thing that I've realized a lot lately, and I think something, for example, we mentioned Fastlane earlier, one thing that makes Fastlane very successful is that it's very easy to extend. And I think like making open source projects easier to extend uh, is a really good quality for them to have because that way you don't need to implement all of the features inside the core project itself. It can still be very, you know, tight and thin and light and simple while still enabling people to solve their problems by writing extensions for it. Yeah, and that's why with something like IG List Kits, we, we have like the diffing algorithm is its own uh, pod. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can use all of the other UI collection view stuff separately. Um, even though they live in the same repository, you, you can actually use them independently. Um, and we wanted to do that not only to be able to let people use the diffing algorithm on things like the Mac or watchOS, but we wanted people to be able to kind of like pick and choose the things that they need. And we're in the middle of building this Swift branch um, for IG List Kit, which is like a, a Swift layer using um, generic Swift generics and stuff uh, to make the programming model a little bit more Swifty. And kind of in the the middle of figuring out should this be part of the core project or should this be you know kind of what you said like a plug-in side project that you can use um, as an extension of IG List Kit itself, or should it be part of kind of like the core repository? That's yeah, a really interesting way of looking at it, I think. And I think it's really challenging to create like a good plugin architecture. But when you do, things can be very, very beautiful, especially if you utilize that plugin architecture internally in the project as well. So everything kind of becomes its own module. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that you almost have to, it's like a goal that you have to set before you write a single line of code. Yeah. Um, otherwise, like you said, it, you, it's going to be so hard to get right and build a good plugin architecture. Um, because if you're if you're trying to go back in time and refactor something to be able to support plugins, I mean, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those assumptions you made along the way come back to bite you. <laughs> right. Cool. Uh, on the topic of modularization, uh, something that I find fascinating also about GitHawk is that it is very modular. If you look at kind of the way its different kind of projects are structured and the way the different features uh, work, where uh, if you go look at the GitHawk organization on GitHub, uh, there's a ton of different projects that you've created kind of as separate repositories and as separate modules. Um, is that kind of along the same line of thinking that we were just discussing, like creating more of these like building blocks or what's your reason for kind of splitting things up that way? So I've always worked uh, well, almost always worked on an infrastructure team at, at Instagram. And I've found that I'm most productive when I can work in an environment that is relatively isolated from its main use. So when we were building GitHawk, a lot of the pieces of infrastructure dealing with like network requests, um, dealing with a user session, uh, dealing with text, how to cache things, all of these things were kind of like isolated problems that if I were to just use inside the app, even as, you know, I've, I've got experience with kind of like getting thing systems dependent on each other and kind of making like spaghetti architectures. 
even though I've got experience in that and I know the signs to look out for, uh-huh. there will be times where if if code lives within the same project, I will know that this code lives in the same project <laughs> and I'll yeah. I'll take the shortcut. It's always easy to import it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and and I'll like you know be like maybe I'm in a situation where I want to go to bed early or <laughs> I, I'm trying to commit some code before the weekend or whatever and and I'll just be like you know what I'm just gonna commit the hack and I'll I'll promise myself I'll clean it up later and and then forget about it and and never do it. Yeah. So it, it was one of those things where because it's an open source project that I want anybody else to be able to contribute to. I, I told myself like we've got to really just kind of split this whole app up into kind of like components. Um, and, and and I really knew that like a, a nice side effect of that too would be that people can then use these other components. Um, it, it, it kind of just really, it was like an exponential open source effect where this app is built into the open and then we can kind of bake and split out all of these other frameworks from the other from this open source app and really kind of just like continue the contribution to the community. That's awesome. Yeah, open source making even more open source. That's that's fantastic. Uh, one really big benefit that I also see with doing this kind of, you know, some people like to call it like framework-oriented programming because apparently everything needs to be something-oriented programming. <laughs> uh, is the fact that you are forced to more consider the API because, like you say, you can't really take those shortcuts anymore where you just like use an internal method or API or something like that. You have to more consider like what's the public API that you want to expose and, you know, you have a more kind of layer of protection there in terms of architecture. And that's, of course, both like a challenge where, especially if you're working on many of those things kind of in parallel and you have to make a lot of different updates, it can be kind of tricky to coordinate all of that stuff. Uh, but I think in the end of the day, it has like a pretty big benefit of of both like having much, much better testability because you have more modular building blocks, but also that you usually are kind of forced to practice your API design skills and you end up with better APIs because... You're, you're kind of forced into into doing that. Yeah, and I also love the idea of being able to... Um, I'm, I'm not a test-driven development purist, mm-hmm. um, but I also really like, with frameworks, doing my development solely in unit tests. Yeah. Um, and that, that's another huge benefit of just splitting these frameworks out is that you can work in your unit tests. Obviously, you have the, the benefit of having these tests that can run on some sort of continuous automation, but if you work by just building the tests, all of a sudden you can build the features, fix the bugs that you need to, then switch back into your main app and uh, wire things up kind of like seamlessly and and stuff just works, uh, which has been a a really great benefit. Yeah, totally. And especially if you work in a large project that takes a long time to compile, you know, having this like really small, you know, demo app or sample project or unit test that you can run uh, really speeds up your development a lot. Uh, yeah, big time. I, I don't even consider GitHawk a huge app, but the, the kind of clean compile times on that are already pretty frustrating. Yeah, it's either working with a big app or basically working with Swift, right? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you say? Should we move on to our Q&A section and answer some questions from the audience? That sounds great. All right, let's do it. Uh, so we're going to start with a question here from Mukesh Tavani. And Mukesh uh, wants us to give some tips on marketing for developers. So other than just being on Twitter, what's a good way to spread a word about an app or an open source project? 
So I think this is a pretty interesting kind of meta discussion where, you know, how do you kind of make people aware of the things that you do? This is something that I get asked quite a lot. So Ryan, when you're building like things like GitHawk and, and you're doing all these projects, what are, what are some of the ways that you, you know, let people know about them? I love that the that Mukesh is saying other than Twitter because I literally have no idea other than Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the only thing I use um, to to really market my projects. But that said, that's the only mechanism I use to kind of broadcast something that I'm I'm working on. I do have tips for how to how to increase the likelihood that people will use your projects. Um, and and I'll I'll speak specifically to open source because with GitHawk I, it's got I think I checked this morning maybe 4,600 monthly users which is awesome but it's by no means like a a landslide success um, so I'm not the mark the App Store marketing guru to, to go to <laughs> not how you're gonna make a next million on the App Store <laughs> no definitely not no a free open source app uh, it's I'll, I'll tell you right now it's not that profitable. <laughs> uh, but for, for open source, um, as funny as it may seem, your technology could be the most groundbreaking thing. If your readme file is just two paragraphs of like raw text, nobody's really going to use it. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't think that that's great. I mean, I don't I, I think that like people, people in projects should be able to stand on the merit of what they've accomplished. But we're all human beings and, and we're drawn to things that looked polished, that looked professional. And I really think that to, to hit the ground running with an open source project, it's, you've got to make sure that the readme file looks good. If, if you can, uh, try to build a logo, um, make sure the documentation is all up to date, that, that there are unit tests. It's, it's really surface level, but to, you know, you, you want to demonstrate to somebody that's going to look at your GitHub page for like 15 seconds that you've taken the time to, to communicate to these random passerbys that you've built a good quality project. And, and there's a lot more than just code um, that, that, that says that the project's really great. Yeah, absolutely. And we do judge books by the cover, right? That's kind of just how 100%. most people work. Yeah. And it also shows that you kind of went into a certain level of care and detail uh, doing something like that, like setting up a nice readme, setting up things like continuous integration and automation and, you know, yep. maybe having like a little welcoming message when people contribute for the first time or something like that. All these little kind of details and, and things you can add just kind of adds to the value of a project and makes it more accessible. It makes it easier to get into and it makes it look more appealing. That's uh, that's kind of usually how it works. So I totally agree with you. Like having a good readme goes a really long way. Yeah, and, and really, uh, you, you mentioned something about like uh, having like a welcome message. A lesson that I learned from working on IG List Kit. So we had before GitHub had the concept of like help wanted or starter tasks or anything. We created a starter task label mm-hmm. for some of our issues because a really we recognized early on that like nobody's gonna nobody cares about the project if people don't feel uh, welcome and encouraged to contribute to it. Uh, if we don't make it accessible, if we don't lower the barrier to entry, uh, we will be the only ones that know how the thing works and we will be the only ones contributing to and using it. So we really kind of went out of our way to take these like 
low hanging fruit, low priority issues, bugs, readme improvements, uh, example projects, and would label them as starter tasks. And it w- we had no idea if it would work, but we actually ended up getting like a flood of people that either had barely contributed to open source um, or were excited to contribute code to a huge company's project. Um, and we made it very clear that any code that you commit to IG ListKit will get shipped into the main Instagram app within a couple weeks. Um, and that was like incredibly exciting to a bunch of people, um, a bunch of young people. And, and that was really uh, fulfilling to me personally. Yeah, I totally agree. I've also started using these uh, labels for starter tasks and help wanted in my projects as well. And it's really amazing, you know, how the community works where you could add an issue and you could, you know, spread the word about it a little bit. And then you could have someone else kind of who you don't know on the other side of the planet kind of go in and, and fix it and work with that on that project with you. And that is yeah, incredibly motivating. And it's it's amazing to see people kind of get into open source that way as well. Yeah. So uh, other than and than that, like making sure that the project is really polished and, and stuff like that, I personally, I don't look at these things so much as, as marketing. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. I share a lot of things, but it's not because I'm kind of marketing it. It's more that I like to share things and I like to also share the progress about things that I'm building. And I think this is something that you do really well as well, Ryan, where... You are not just saying, oh, here's what I built. Ta-da, look at me. I'm amazing. <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are sharing the progress. You're sharing things like, here's the new website I'm building. Here's the new logo I'm designing. And you're showing the work in progress when it's, when it's not finished, when it's like in a, in a raw state. You're asking for feedback. And this is not only great for like getting people involved in something and, and, and excited about something, but it's also super valuable because you get feedback early in the process rather than once you've spent like months building something and then you realize, oh, I could have done it a different way. Yeah. And I also think that there's, a, in order to build like a community, that community needs to trust you. And I, I think that opening up like this and, and exposing yourself and being a little bit vulnerable about what you're building and what you're good at and what you're really not good at uh, helps establish trust with others that, you know, they, they see you working on this project. And, and I hope the, that this has happened with GitHawk that people can be like, yeah, Ryan, Ryan's trying. He's learning things. <laughs> at least <And> he's trying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's not perfect. Uh, it's never going to be perfect, but um you know, it, I, I want to make sure that people can see the project and know that it's constantly a work in progress and that their input is always welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always interesting to see like the making of something as well, especially if you see it kind of unfold before your eyes. And uh, that's why I love, I, I'm a huge gamer, so I love seeing like, you know, games that are being released earlier and then they're taking uh, feedback from the community and improving them. And when we can do the same thing about, you know, apps or open source projects or something we're building, getting this feedback early is, you know, it can be a really, really big thing, both for ourselves and for the community using it. One of my uh, favorite shows growing up was this show on the Discovery Channel called How It's Made. Oh, yeah. Uh, that just details, you know, from start, from scratch to finished product, you know, how you would build a pencil or something. Uh, it, and I thought that would be kind of a fun concept to, to use with GitHawk is to go through, yeah, the, the logo creation and 
some of the architecture and, and refactors and, and marketing and all of this sort of stuff uh, just to show like, you know, look, here's the cross section of this app development and, and let people enjoy that, uh, you know, offer input. But if, you know, if you want to just like watch it and, and, and have fun. Yeah, totally. All right, next question here comes from Ahmed Kalaf, who wants us to give some general tips on, on achieving 60 frames per second scrolling, and what are some common pitfalls that affect it? So you mentioned earlier, Ryan, that you've been battling the you know, frame drops and you know, trying to make things render as smoothly as possible. So what are your top tips for smooth performance when scrolling? So to me, there's only two real things uh, to, to improve scroll performance. One of them is sizing text. Uh, and that's why with, with GitHawk, we built this styled text library uh, that is, is a way to declare and size and render text off of the main thread. Uh, but this is a, a concept that I've been exploring and playing with since I joined Instagram. My, my first manager, Scott Goodson, was the creator of Async Display Kit. And I, I kind of, he kind of took me under his wing and taught me so much about like app performance. You know, he was one of the original authors of, of Facebook's paper app too. That was just like incredible, even on an iPhone four. Oh wow! And it, it, it I became obsessive with uh, achieving sixty frames per second scrolling. Um, so text text is by far one of the biggest issues. Um, the next one's probably going to be like image decoding. So. If you take an image and you download it and you just have like a UI image and you slap it into a UI image view, most people think that you just put the image, you, you do like image view dot image equals my image and that things are fine. But if your image is of a different size, uh, it, the CPU will actually have to do some work to make that image uh, fit. And what you want to do is try to actually size and decode that image to where it's going to be used and the device and screen settings and everything prior to setting that image. And you can do that on a background thread. And in addition to that, there's all of the sort of gotchas like um, don't do uh, disk IO, uh, make sure you have like efficient lookups, cache your sizes, all of those sort of things. Um, but I, to me, the biggest one is text. I'm also going to give two tips. And uh, the first one is... Uh kind of building on top of what you just said, because there are so many things that can become pitfalls or bottlenecks once you start doing them, you know, very often. Things like image decoding or, you know, deserializing JSON or, uh, you know, disk IO, like you mentioned. Uh, but it can be really hard to kind of know where to draw the line. Like, when should I start doing this on a background thread? Because you don't want to do like this super premature optimization of making everything super synchronous and everything running on background threads, because then you'll have a really hard to maintain app. So my first tip would be to profile really, really early and really often, rather than having profiling as like an afterthought, you know, when you, just before you submit to the app store, oh, let me just profile here real quick, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, to do that as often as you can and kind of get that into your workflow. Because if you have the 60 frames per second mindset, uh, which you know I think is usually good to have to to really try to achieve that at all times. Uh, you really want to profile really often and use like all the tools that instruments give you to uh, measure the frame rates and all that stuff. Uh, and then the second tip uh, is to 
understand a little bit more about kind of how rendering works because it can be something that can be a bit intimidating uh, to look into kind of GPU programming or how does rasterization work or how does it mean like to do off-screen rendering and things like that. But it's uh, quite simple once you start diving into it and start diving into like what does core animation really do? You know, what does it mean for something to rasterize? What does it mean for... Uh, like you mentioned, like if an image has an invalid size, why does the CPU have to do more work? And to kind of understand that rendering pipeline. And I'll, and you get a lot of that actually from profiling because you start to see some bottlenecks, you start to see some common things come up in the, in the profiler. And that kind of enables you to learn more about the iOS rendering pipeline. And you can use both of these two things to kind of build a better understanding to, as to why something is dropping frames. Yeah, those are great tips. So uh, we have one final question here, and this one comes from your coworker, I guess, uh, Sash Satz. And uh, he wants us to talk a little bit about the transition that you made from being an individual contributor to a manager. And he phrased the question as, as, what did you have to sacrifice (laughs) while transitioning? (laughs) So it's a little bit of a loaded question. (laughs) But uh, if if we attack it from the angle of, like, what was the biggest change for you, like going from, you know, being an individual contributor, working on your own code to being a manager? I mean, really, the, the simplest answer is coding. Um, a management role at Facebook, really, you're responsible for making sure that other engineers are, are happy and, and productive. Um, and, and to do that, you, you really can't be spending your entire day in, in your own code. And it's it's a big transition. Um, something that, like I, I mentioned before, is very new to me. I'm not good at it, but I, I, I made this switch so that I could learn. Um, one of the hardest aspects for me has been, you know, there, there's always this sort of like meme about how you, you're going to constantly be in meetings all day, and th- mm-hmm. and that's it's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm in meetings all day. Yeah. The hard part about that is you'll end the day and sometimes even end the week where whereas an IC you might have landed a whole bunch of code uh, or built a feature or fixed a huge bug or made some performance improvement and you can look back at that day or that week and tell yourself like that was awesome I I contributed this thing I built this thing I feel uh, I feel fulfilled and as a manager that can become really difficult you you look back at a week or a day full of meetings and and you might not have one thing that you can point your finger at and say like I did that, uh, I completed this project or something. That's not to say that that stuff doesn't exist. To me, and and take this all with a grain of salt because I've been managing for uh, just four months now. But the management engineering management is is a marathon, and you're trying to keep all of these different initiatives, projects, people moving and making progress so that at the end of six months or a year, you can achieve something. Uh, And not just one thing, but you can achieve dozens of things. And it's really just about prioritizing your time and making sure that the meetings that you are attending are are important, uh, that when you're in those meetings that you're driving a message that you're fixing a problem, you're unblocking somebody, and that you're making these small bits of progress that will help others make tons more progress. Um, and and so at the end, you know, I've, like I said, been doing this for four months. I, I've been able to see progress on some of these things that we're working on, and, and see people ship things and fix things, 
and and been able to feel uh, excited and and satisfied that like uh, some of these weeks where it feels like it's just back to back context um, context changing were actually worth it because I'm I'm keeping this stuff moving I'm solving problems it's just in these little kind of like chunks uh, these little quick chunks versus having uh, six hours to just uh, build a feature or something. I have a very, very similar experience as well. I was a manager for almost a year at Spotify. Eventually, I actually ended up going back to being an individual contributor again because well, I find myself at a kind of a crossroads where I had to pick, you know, should I dive deeper into management and, you know, fully embrace that or should I focus on coding? And at that point, I was like, I actually want to focus on coding. Uh, but I did enjoy my time as a manager, and I think it was a really, really valuable period of time for me, uh, mostly because the thing you also mentioned, where you realize that a success of a team is not down to one person. And when I was a developer before, well, I didn't consider myself like, well, I am the only one that's going to make this make or break. But a lot of the time you get this like very personal ownership over a certain piece of code, and I felt like you know, this this piece of code here, it's all about like my contributions to it. But when I became a manager, I realized it's more about the bigger picture and enabling other people to succeed and enabling a whole team to succeed together uh, is really where it's at. And the individual contributions are important, but what makes up the whole is even more interesting and even more important. Yeah, yeah, well put. All right, so that's all the questions that we have time for on this episode. And we've now also reached the end. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Ryan, for joining me on this episode. It's been a blast talking to you about all these cool things. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. This was super fun. Yeah, totally. So if people want to follow you and uh, they want to check out the work that you've been doing, obviously we'll put links in the show notes to all of your projects and IGList Kit, GitHawk, all that stuff. But what's the best place to kind of reach you if people want to follow you online? I think Twitter's the best. Um, you can find me at underscore Ryan Nystrom. Perfect. All right, so make sure to follow Ryan. Uh, he's putting out some really, really interesting stuff, I think. And again, you can see kind of the, the, the process of making some of these things as well, which is always really, really interesting. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and the weekly blog post at swiftbysundell.com. Big thanks again to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. 